Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast for the dreamers and the driven who are changing the world their way. Our guest this week is Nicola Peel. She spent the last 20 years studying and living in the Amazon rainforest. She has a deep understanding of how our habits as consumers affect the health of the planet and how the health of the planet affects us as humans. Um, I was just funnily looking at this earlier. You know, they talk about in how many planets worth of resources that if the whole world consumed the same as America, we would need four planets. Oh, oh my God. That puts it into perspective. If everybody, if the whole planet consumed as much as Bangladesh or India, you wouldn't even need half a planet. Wow. Before we listen to the rest of the episode, everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. And we are live, Nicola Peel. Welcome to Why It Matters. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to be back. Um, For a little bit of context, we had recorded a truly phenomenal, enlightening, groundbreaking conversation for myself. And I thought it was going to be for a bunch of listeners, and I ended up not hitting the record button. So now we are back recording. Um, so thank you for, for coming back and being open-minded to having another conversation. First one was amazing. Um, and so to get into you and your work, um, I would love to leave it to yourself to just start off with a description of what you do um, and just inform people listening is like, what what is the essence of Nicola Peel and your work. Well, hi everybody, and uh, yes, but that was obviously your um, your personal download there uh, <laughs> in our last podcast. So who knows where it will go today? Um, but yeah, so to, to kind of a little bit of my history, I have been working for the last twenty years in the Ecuadorian Amazon. I you know I used to call myself an environmentalist, but I changed it to my current job title, which is solutionist. My interest really has been not on the kind of all the environmental problems in the world, but actually what can we do about them? Thank you for the the high level um, description. Um, And so I'd love to hear like from you, maybe backing up, like what is the, what is the common theme that is tying these things together? What is your, why are you doing all this stuff? What is your why? And what are you seeing that you feel like, you feel driven to to work on like what is the thing that what is the root of what you're doing and and why you're doing it well i suppose it could be summed up in one word injustice Hmm. when you witness injustice and you open your eyes and see that this is not right it's not okay that we treat the earth like this it's not okay that we treat humans like this. We have a sense of responsibility to not just close our eyes or put our blinkers on and walk away from it, but instead to say, well, okay, 
you know, who am I and what can I do about this? And so often people feel that they're just one small person and they can't do anything. And this feeling of being overwhelmed and disempowered leaves a lot of apathy, which is why people don't do anything. And I think for me, that doesn't work. You know, it's like actually anything we can do to improve the state of the world, we must act on. So that's what really has driven me in saying, well, if I can just build one person a water system to give them clean water, then why wouldn't I do it? If I can prevent just one acre of forest being cut down, well, I'm going to do all that I can. So that's really what motivates me to do it. How did you develop that mindset? Because I feel, I definitely feel aligned and have a similar mindset of like, learned about a few things and that those things have informed the reason why I'm doing this podcast and having conversations with people like yourself. And once I learned about how some things function in the world, I've just felt so kind of in shock and surprised at the injustice that certain systems like the financial and political system had put in place to prevent certain people from having the life that they want, the career that they want, whatever it may be. And I think for me, I just felt compelled to to do something about it. And so that's kind of how I got to where I am at today. But I'd love to hear from you, like what, I think there's a big gap in some problem that I'm really interested in is like, how do we get a bunch of people who are like on the edge of like feeling compelled, but not taking the action to go and do something. I think if we can get a bunch of those people on board and like, Hey, let's, I'm going to, today I'm going to spend that 30 minutes reading about it or giving to your Patreon account, which I would love, love if you could describe the name and where people can uh, Patreon for some context is a place where you can support individual creators and thinkers like Nicola. So love to hear your Patreon account. Um, but I think that it's a really important place in the economy and in the world is like the people that are like right there on the edge. Um, so for people that maybe are listening and are like that, how did you go from being someone that maybe you first heard about this, first read about it, first had an experience in the field, and then you actually were like, I'm going to then, I'm going to do something. Like, no matter how small, no matter how big, like, how did you make that decision for yourself? I don't know if I made the decision for myself or <laughs> some other out of force just drives me into action because sometimes I don't know if it is a conscious decision for me to say, okay, I'm going to think this through and do X, Y, and Z. It's much more, you know, some kind of inner force that drives me to take action. You know, when I see something and whether that's, you know, I mean, most people are like collectivists, you know, they can click an email. That's easy to do. Yeah. But taking it the next step, that's where I think you really need to, you know, have a real drive in you to want to do it. You know, it's really easy to just, you know, fill in a petition or, or do something and then feel like, oh yeah, well, I've done something. And that can also lull us into a sense of complacency of thinking, oh, yeah, well, I've, I've done my bit. But then the next minute, you know, we drive down and buy a cup of coffee, you know, and uh, we use that cup with a plastic lid and, you know, for one moment's enjoyment and throw it away or put it in the recycling and then we feel good about it. Yeah. 
And these things are not going to help us. They're not going to change. You know, I mean, I actually speak out against recycling because I think it's a cop out as an environmentalist. You know, I should be promoting recycling. But actually, it just perpetuates consumerism because we can have as much as we want, put it in the right colored bin and keep consuming. It's exactly. consumerism that is the problem. I would love to get into that because I feel like that is almost not only I was searching for that, but I think when I was kind of asking what are the what are the driving forces behind agroforestry, which is one topic you're focused on, deforestation and and this other space. Um, like what like what's the thing? And I, I feel like that sounds I mean it's you never sum up anything, but that seems like the driving force behind a lot of the stuff that you're talking about and deforestation, you need, you need to cut down trees to build the economy and have certain products. And, and so it's kind of all related to this kind of idea of economic growth and consumption and these pressures from social media to have a certain lifestyle. Um, but I would love to hear just like your, maybe your take on like what, what are things like consumption is a really big macro thing that like kind of like you're saying that that inner thing you have inside of you that inner drive like cons consumption is such a big theme and it's something that a lot of people consume because almost they're told to consume and not because they they want to consume so like what what would you say around that that topic of consumption like how could that be how could the narrative around that be shifted? Well, I mean, America's one of the greatest places to start because um, <laughs> they're not the worst. Actually, the United Arab Emirates is a worse consumer than America. Hmm. Um, I was just funnily looking at this earlier. You know, they talk about in how many planets worth of resources that if the whole world consumed the same as America, we would need four planets. Oh, oh my god that puts Terrible. it into perspective if everybody if the whole planet consumed as much as bangladesh or india you wouldn't even need half a planet wow so right now if every single if we wanted equality if we wanted everybody to be the same and have you know all the food they could possibly want to eat and, you know, and a, a refrigerator and a computer and a phone and all the gadgets and all the resources. As a typical American person, we would actually need four planets to sustain that. That puts it in perspective. The reason that the United Arab Emirates is even more so is they would need five planets if every single person lived like they do. And that is because they can't grow any food out there. They import it all. They, you know, have this extremely lavish lifestyle. There's a huge amount of power that goes on out there. I mean, even to the point of, you know, in the desert, they have ice rinks, they have um, snow fields. They use this excessive amount of energy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have these countries which are, you know, if you went to a market in India or Bangladesh, nothing would be wrapped in plastic. 
you would just buy what you needed, which quite often the staple diet that people have is rice and lentils. You know, a human body can be nourished with enough protein, but our diet is so excessive. We consume so much energy in our diet that there is no way that all 7 billion people on the planet could eat like an American. So I'm not sure what, where we get the other four planets from or the other three planets from, because of course we all believe in justice and equality and poverty is a major issue that people, you know, many people don't even have the basics of food to survive. And we look at a culture that just wastes so much food. I mean, there is an obscene amount of waste of food to a point where it's almost normalized, where people don't see it as being a problem. Oh, you know, this ridiculous, you know, something being out of date. The, oh, they look at it and it's the wrong, wrong number saying it's out of date. They just throw it away. Mm-hmm. So we are trapped in this world of consumerism. I mean, you know, the madness of these kind of like, you know, the the Black Friday frenzy or the new iPhone comes out and there's this obsession, there's this addiction to consume. And we see it, you know, the epitome of it, you know, I see in the States because there really seems to to show that it's almost like the worst of consumerism that we can see in many ways coming from that society. And it's a really hard story to tell because, you know, it's, it's our culture, it's who we are. You know, Europe's pretty bad, but we're not quite as bad. You know, and I have spent, you know, time over the years in California and seen, you know, how, how big everything is, how big the stores are, how, how much stuff, how much choice there is. And when I compare that to a shop in Ecuador, which is, you know, a general store is like a few meters big, you know, it's this little shed <laughs> and all it has is oil and salt and sugar and the absolute basic essentials. And when we compare that to a massive box store, that is just full of all this stuff. And if every country was to have box stores just like America and all this stuff wrapped in plastic, we can kind of see how the problem would be so much worse than it already is. Yeah, and it's super interesting that the point you made about the planets. And I think that in itself, if there's, if one group of people in the world is consuming stuff that is you need four planets to consume that amount of stuff and in another part of the world is consuming at a rate where you only need half the planet to fulfill that consumption that in itself is showing the injustice it's like you need eight times as much consumption to live to live as a human being on the planet um i think it's it's a super interesting way to kind of think about it and have some type of level of understanding of like where we're actually at in terms of this stuff because it's easy to like Amazon, for example, look at Amazon and like, you know, you get, get something in a day, you get something in two days, whatever and consumption, but it's hard to be like, so how is this really fitting in the bigger picture outside of this like 
new hairbrush I just ordered. You know, it's like kind of like, I don't really understand. Um, I think I'll, some potential, obviously these are macro trends that are hard to change overnight, but I think there's a lot of things going on where we're, people are looking to nature and getting lessons from nature in terms of how it operates the system, how different stakeholders interact within it. Um, and I'd love to talk about something specific that you, a really cool idea and an initiative that you proposed that has to do with deforestation. Um, and so deforestation just, for people who don't know, uh, it's just cutting down trees essentially. And cutting down trees is being done in a rate in different places around the world that's super unhealthy. Um, and it's destroying ecosystems and stuff like that. So I'd love to hear from your perspective. And I think this, this ties to consumerism because we have to cut down trees to support a growing economy and a growing economy is based on growth and consumption. Um, so this initiative and Sasha idea that you have is super interesting. It's called pay to breathe. Um, so I'd love to hear about what pay to breathe is, what it means and how it relates to this idea of de deforestation and therefore consumerism. Yeah. I mean, deforestation comes in many different ways, you know, and forest is, is valued in different ways economically and also for, you know, the amount of life that actually exists in there. So we can cut down a forest um, of, you know, trees which have been grown for, for our use, for paper, for timber, or we can grow, we can cut down a KBA, a key biodiversity area an area which has a huge amount of endemic life, which means species that are not found anywhere else on the planet. Mm. So we have two totally different areas that we can cut down with totally different results. So what my interest is, is the areas of highest biodiversity that we're cutting down. And so, well, okay, you know, as we, every day, we are focused, there's this crazy, you know, let's, tree plant our way out of this mess idea where people you know as the more we talk about you know the climate and the ecological breakdown the more people think that we need to plant trees and there is a major issue because in the very same moment like let's imagine right now somewhere on the earth they are planting a thousand trees and exactly this very second somewhere on earth they are cutting down a thousand ancient trees in a primary forest that is a key biodiversity area, an area where if you cut that forest down, it will cause extinction because it has endemic species that are not found anywhere else. So these really are like the jewels of our planet. They are the places that contain more different forms of life. So on the equator, if we kind of go back, it's almost like a kind of Noah's Ark. Mm. So what happened in the last ice age was as the creatures moved away from the poles, there on the equator became these places that ended up like islands of life. So there's been more and more time for evolution. There's so much more life that lives in these forests. So if we're to work in order of priority, we would say, well, okay, we need to stop deforestation in the areas which are vital. They are vital for life. 
We can't stop all deforestation all over the planet, but we need to prioritize where we save first. Because I've spent 20 years working in the Amazon and also in the Choco cloud forests, you know, I have been lucky enough to be in these places which are extremely highly biodiverse. And the craziness is that around these places, poverty is driving them to be cut down. You can buy a hectare of a key biodiversity area full of so much life that many species still don't even have names. They don't even have scientific names. You could buy it for $500 for a hectare. And that's what they're selling it for right now. And then it will be cut down and turned into cattle fields or palm oil or coffee or cacao for chocolate or for sugar. So all of that, which we demand and coming back to consumerism, we want a coffee that's got milk and sugar in it. We don't think where it's come from or that potentially a forest has been cut down so that I can drink that coffee. But that is the hard reality. So my interest is like, okay, let's prioritize what we save, where we save it. And yes, we pay for our food and we pay for our water, but we don't pay for the air we breathe. We just take that for granted. And where does the air that we breathe come from? Well, it either comes from the trees and from the forests, or it comes from the oceans and the plankton. Yeah, that's what creates the oxygen that we breathe. So surely we must value the breath of life. And some people will say, yeah, but you cannot value nature. And of course, you can't value the intrinsic spiritual value of nature. But right now, nature is only valued when it's dead. A tree is valued in timber or an elephant in its ivory. Nature is not valued alive. So we have to change the story and start to value nature and find ways to move money to those people who are the guardians, whether they be indigenous peoples or local communities that live in these areas that are highly biodiverse so that we pay them to protect it to collect the seeds, to grow tree nurseries, and to expand areas. And to when we do do tree planting, we actually plant trees next to a highly biodiverse area so that it enlarges in size and therefore will definitely become a biodiverse area. I'm... So that's what I was talking about with Pay to Breathe. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I think there's two, there's a bunch of themes in there that if we had hours, I would love to go into, but I think two that stick out to me are biodiversity and the life that comes from that. In there, I think the Noah's Ark story is super interesting and in how evolution has occurred at a faster rate because there's more life within those areas. It's super, like cr crazy. That's, I didn't know that. that's crazy. Um, and I'd love to also, after asking a question about biodiversity, get into the, the economics behind this and how in 
how poverty plays a role in the dynamic between the forest and the people that live there and their ability to have a life and send their kids to school and the financials behind that. Um, so I'd love to get into that after. But first, could you touch on first maybe the importance of biodiversity? Like why why is why is life why does life matter at at some level? Like why does it even matter that we have biodiverse areas? What is biodiversity? Um, and could you talk about how the story that we mentioned last time about an elephant being worth more alive than being worth more from the raw materials that you can get from an elephant when it's not alive. Um, that'd be awesome. Well, the work of um, the valuation of elephants and whales comes from Ralph Shami, who's the, uh, an assistant director of the IMF and also is the co-founder of Rebalance Earth. And funnily enough, I interviewed him yesterday for my <laughs> podcast. Um, and their work has been to do exactly that, to value a, for example, an elephant. And so we can value an elephant right now for its ivory. Um, that's how much the poachers will get for it. Or for the natural ecosystem services that the elephant provides. So we're not actually valuing the elephant itself. But science has been able to show that if you compare a forest that is a healthy forest, an intact ecosystem with forest elephants, in comparison to the same forest where there are no elephants, they can clearly calculate how much more carbon is in the forest that has the elephants. Mm. And the reason that this is, is because elephants poo a lot, and so therefore they fertilize the soil, which makes the tree grows, but also they thin out the undergrowth. And so when they thin out the undergrowth, it means that trees can grow bigger. And so therefore they are trapping more carbon. So when we look at carbon sequestration, you know, how much carbon is being sucked out of the atmosphere, which is what we desperately need right now to get it out of the atmosphere, then they can equate this to the work of an elephant sequesters so much more carbon than an area which doesn't have an elephant. So when we're talking of, you know, an elephant, it's like over one and a half million dollars per elephant in just the, the services that it's offering. Hmm. They've done the same calculations for whales and they come to two million dollars wow. because a whale also poops a lot. And therefore, there is, and also the way that whales go up and down into the depths, they fertilize and they move the plankton in the ocean. And it's the plankton that also sucks in huge amounts of carbon dioxide. So these two huge keystone species have a massive role to play. But all we're talking about is some big, massive machine that we're going to create that's going to suck all the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Right now, those machines don't exist. They are still something that is being talked about, but we do not have any large carbon capture storage facilities happening. So which is why it's vital that we work with nature and let nature you know, help us to remove this carbon from the atmosphere. Super, super interesting. Um, I, it's hard to <laughs> think about $2 million and 
that's a that's a large sum of money and thinking that that's how if you could think about that sum of money and and think about a whale in the ocean and being like that is that is how valuable that whale is and just putting those two things together like geez like nature first off just nature is a beautiful a beautiful thing it's a, a beautiful now it's become a place um it's kind of a place where we go and spend time but we are also nature and it's just a beautiful thing and to think that people have been able to calculate based on carbon and the carbon that's pulled out of the atmosphere by plankton which like you mentioned like whales helped um i don't know the exact way to describe it but they help make plankton be able to do that better it's super interesting to to think about like that is worth two million dollars so super valuable stuff um and I'd love to hear go a little bit more into that. Just from your time, I, you spent a lot of time deep in the Amazon forest with not a lot of things and kind of just yourself in the forest. And so I'd love to hear from that experience. Like why does biodiversity matter both to you and in the context of where we're at with the climate? I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is because of the sheer awe and beauty of diversity imagine if all the flowers were exactly the same on the planet you know (laughs) really you know the more the more diversity the more beauty and it's just incredible i mean the up in a place in the cloud forest there were over 400 kinds of orchids Orchid, I am now, you know, kind of a certified, you know, orchid lover because they are amazing. We just know a few that you get in a garden center, mm. but, you know, they are one of the most beautiful flowers on the planet. Now, why does this one tiny little forest have potentially 400 different kinds of orchids? And each different kind of flower is often pollinated by a different kind of insect. And that insect is then eaten by a different kind of bird. And it goes on and on and on where everything has a part in the jigsaw. All this life and the more biodiversity, the more it feeds more biodiversity until you just kind of create this humming life force. It's very, very hard for us to imagine in Europe or in the States because we don't have biodiversity anywhere near like what I'm talking about. We have very, very few species. And when you change that to a place like the Amazon or or like cloud forest, which has so many species that, as I said before, many of them still don't have a scientific name. We don't know what they even do. We don't know what their role is in the ecosystem. We don't know what happens if you just take that one creature out, what depends on it. So there's this intricate web of life that we still don't really understand what's doing what. But we could look at it from an anthropocentric point of view and go, well, hey, the future of medicine is going to come from fungi or bacteria. So, you know, look at penicillin, look at the most powerful medicines generally are fungal or bacterial based. 
So it's pretty high chance that the future of our medicines are going to come from, you know, some kind of fungi that came in some highly biodiverse forest that we don't even know what it's called. And what we're doing is we're cutting these forests down and we're killing all these species that we don't even know what they do. And so that's where the issue lies, that, um, you know, the madness of humans it's, is not really taking our future into consideration. Yeah, it's, it's silly at the end of the day. Um, and some people have certain self-interest to be cutting that tree down, but it's really come to a point where people are just so self-interested that they've lost sight of any, any single thing that isn't outside of what they're trying to get. And a lot of what some people are trying to get when they're cutting trees down and doing things like that is just more money, more, more power, more wealth. Um, and not to say everyone that's doing that thing is innately bad, but it's just at a point now where I think we need to reconsider the way we do things and think about like pay to breathe, like what that means and in different ways of interacting with the life that surrounds us. Um, well, I mean, it. yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole, you know, really important point about this, you know, cutting these places down is that the people that are often doing it are, have no choice. They feel they have no choice. They have no money. They are living in extreme poverty. So, you know, obviously, you know, they need food and medicine. But also, I've heard many times people say to me, we want to send our kids to school. And why shouldn't they send their kids to school? Yeah. And the only way they can do this is by cutting the forest down selling the timber and then selling the land. So when people are in a position where, I mean, I was just talking to somebody the day before yesterday in Ecuador, and he is an absolute nature lover. He works really closely with the scientists. And, and he just said to me, there's no tourists, there's no scientists. I have no choice. I'm going to have to cut some of my tree down. And for him, that was massive because he understands the importance. Whereas many of the people that live in the area, they have no idea what they're cutting down. Uh, you know, and almost as that ignorance is bliss. They don't understand biodiversity and they don't understand about endemic species that actually they're going to cut down that acre and in amongst those forests, in amongst those trees will be species that are not found anywhere else on the planet. But they don't understand that. All they know is that they need to put food on the table and they want to send their kids to school. So, so it's very, we can't blame them for that because there's no other money coming to them. So whilst we in the West manage to waste money on, you know, crazy things, <laughs> these people here, all they want is the, the basic needs met. Yeah. Do you, in that Thank you for that explanation. I was going to ask about that. Um, so in terms of someone that's living or that, that person in that story you just told, um, would they, would pay to breathe play a role in helping that person out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've been, you know, speaking to them about it a lot and saying, look, I promise you that one day in the future, we will pay 
and we will value the places of highest biodiversity first because that's what makes sense let's save the areas and there's not many of them left so like coming back to that prioritizing we identify all of the kbas all the key biodiversity areas we ensure their protection first so anybody that lives there will need to be paid to actually protect the forest so somebody like martin who i'm talking to you about would be absolutely key in this to be able to like he wants he doesn't want to have to cut his forest down if he was receiving money to actually be the guardian of the forest be the guardian of the future medicines and the guardian of the air that we breathe it would make sense to move the flow of energy towards people like him i i'm all for it um and i was thinking as you're saying that like how can my like me how can people listening how can someone help whether like whatever that means in in terms of something super active or something not very active um and how i'm just kind of on that though i'm curious like how can whether it's pay to breathe or whether it's some other work that you mentioned at the beginning like what is your thoughts on getting your work to scale whether that means in impact people being aware of it in in kind of that aspect of the work that you're doing um so if you could give a context on like if someone's listening and they're like i want to i want to stop this podcast right now actually please don't do that but i want to you know <laughs> go and look up what you're doing and support it um and then also with that question like what are your thoughts and plans on getting this thing scaled well there are so many organizations doing so much good work and it's really difficult to choose you know who and and what and people have to really just go with their gut on you know who they want to support and you know there's a lot of kind of controversy around carbon offsetting where should we all actually pay for the carbon that we're currently emitting and yes we should you know each one of us is absolutely responsible for the amount of carbon that we're dumping in the atmosphere so the more people that fly the more people that drive the more people that buy stuff there is a footprint to all of that and so you know people say well hey carbon offsetting is like a guilt tax just keep flying and buying loads of stuff and then just calculate how much carbon was embedded in it and then offset that carbon and you can just carry on doing it mm. this is not what we're talking about we have to absolutely reduce consumption and acknowledge that we all have a footprint and every one of us is responsible for that so a we need to reduce our own personal carbon emissions and every single person does need to you know apart from those that are in bangladesh that can up theirs a bit but um then we can actually get there's loads of carbon footprint calculators online where we can calculate okay how much do i contribute to the problem and therefore pay some organization whoever you want to pay to offset what you are personally doing now i certainly don't think the carbon off offsetting is the answer but i think it's better than nothing Mm -hmm. So the first place that we all need to start is to acknowledge our part in the problem 
and to actually put something into it to help. So there's a lot of organizations out there. I am still looking for that organization that can help me move money to these people. I haven't found it. This is what urgently needs to happen. There are a lot of organizations talking about it, using blockchain and moving money directly, but it's still not happening. So if anybody knows of an organization that can do this, can move money directly to the people, then absolutely contact me. Um, there are, you know, there's organizations that I work for, like Rainforest Saver, doing absolutely brilliant work in a real way. And, you know, it's a tiny charity that can really use the money. So there's loads of organizations that, you know, really can benefit from having dollars sent their way. So I think that that's a real way that people can help because we can't just talk about it and then go down, you know, and just like, you know, I say with my Patreon supporters, the first tier starts at the same as a cup of coffee a month. You know, could we just have one less cup of coffee and give me that money, you know, so I can carry on doing my work? So, yeah, that's how we kind of work it out. Awesome. Thank you. And for people listening, it's your website is a, as a place to start. Nicola Peel, so your name, which I'll put in the title, um, yeah. dot com. Yeah. And my Patreon is Patreon slash solutionist. Oh, I like that. Um, that's what I am, a solutionist. <laughs> and I'm recruiting more solutionists, you well, know. This is a... people, I've had the question, how do you get to be a solutionist? And my answer is, you need to come up with 11 good solutions. You know, 11 solutions, and then I reckon you can be a solutionist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think that's, that topic might be another episode. Um, I'd love to stick more to the, the output of the work that you're doing. But I, in kind of on that note, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the personal side to what you're doing. And like, I, I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people in the world and there's not many people who have spent time in the Amazon rainforest. And there's not a lot of people that have spent time in the Amazon rainforest who didn't ever live in the forest or live near the forest. Um, so I think it's a super, just talking to people about their life's path and learning about the different, this small, some, somewhat, sometimes it's really small, small decisions that can change your life. Sometimes it's really big intentional things that change your life. Um, but I'd love to hear like, what was it that brought you down there? And what was it that sparked your curiosity about this space? Well, I hadn't ever thought about going down there. I was living in Australia for a few years. And when I was living there, I came across the great ecologist John Seed and his organization, which was called the Rainforest Information Center. And it was from meeting them that they were looking for some crazy person that would go down to the Amazon <laughs> and, you know, and yeah, really. So it was like, Oh, Hey, you know, really go to spend six months in the Amazon. Yeah, I could do that. So it, I'd never planned to go. It was just, that's what happened. And yeah. And then these last kind of 20 years of doing what I can to set up all these, these projects, but then the ultimate sacrifice now for me 
is to go, well, okay, I've done that. I still continue to support all my projects down there, but I won't fly again. Because wow. right now, the greatest thing we can do is we have, you know, I mean, some scientists are really, really saying we got seven years now. I mean, you know, they were saying 10 years a few years ago. We're down to like, we ain't got much time. Mm. And if I'm going to take this emergency like it is an emergency, and I do know, you know, I feel like I've educated myself enough about the climate and ecological breakdown, then it's like, okay, what more can I do? Yeah, am I doing my recycling and I'm not drinking so much coffee and, you know, I'm paying a renewable energy provider. But all these things are just scratching around the surface. Yeah. I have to be personally responsible for my bit in this picture. And even though people say to me, hey, but yeah, when you fly to the Amazon, you're going there to do something good. I'm not going down as a tourist to have a nice time. My friends in Ecuador will never get on a plane, any of them. So there's part of it, which is the social justice, that why should I be able to fly when they can't? Why can I, you know, just emit all this pollution and they don't? So, you know, it took some soul searching to really think about that and to be able to let that life go, but to say, actually, there comes a point when we all got to sacrifice something and if that means just starting off by drinking one less cup of coffee a day, well, hey, that's where it starts. Because we've got to take into consideration where things came from, the resources that it took to get it to us. And if anything is cheap, then we need to have alarm bells going off. Because that means that somewhere, someone and the land has not been treated fairly. So really, that's what I've kind of, you know, aligned myself with is using as, as least resources as possible and really doing as much as I can to protect this beautiful place we all call home. It is. It is so beautiful. And I, I respect that decision a lot because just hearing that, it's like, wow, that's a that's a that's changing your life for a very long time because it's limiting you to a small place, which is, uh, you know, the world's becoming more and more connected and global through things like, you know, flights and airplanes. And that's a, a tough, really, really tough decision to make. So I respect that a lot. And I think it's something that I will consider in my life. Um, and I think to wrap up, I'd love to ask you a question about the work that you're doing and why it matters. Um, so I think we've talked about a lot of things in this episode that are clearly super important um, and are very meaningful to yourself, to myself, and a lot of people that are working on these things. Um, and with seven years, like seven years is not a lot of time. Um, seven years, my last seven years has flown by and hopefully the next seven will be less fast, but I think they'll be even crazier with what's coming up um so i'd love to hear just stepping back like why does this matter why does this matter well i suppose it matters to the kids of the future those that haven't yet been born 
So we've been blessed to live in a world where we've got abundant food and we can eat and we can drink and we can be happy and, you know, we've got a pretty good life. And I'd hate to see that really change. But you speak to any university on the entire planet and every single university on earth all agrees that climate change is anthropocentric. It has been caused by humans. We're not debating this anymore, you know? So it's like, well, okay, if we've caused it, can we solve it? And the way that that starts is by massive change. It's not gonna change if we all just carry on as normal. So what does that actually mean for all of us? I mean, even being here in England, you know, I mean, it's cold at the moment and we have a whole country of totally uninsulated houses. If you got an infrared camera and you walked around outside, you could see all this energy being lost through the windows and the doors. We are literally heating the atmosphere. Mm. The future is not going to look like that. The future that we're designing now is super energy efficient. It's like if we look, and it's really exciting, if we look through using biomimicry and the future of architecture and the future of energy, and what does the future look like to you? Because there's two routes, you know, there's the kind of apocalyptic route, which I sure don't want to be looking at. Or there's another route where we are actually thriving with this planet. And if we want to thrive, not just survive, how do we do that? How do we learn from the past and move into the future? So that's really what we've all got to learn is that that's what it's going to take. It's going to take every one of us doing something, not just thinking, oh, someone else is going to fix it. I'm going to wait for big brother. I'm going to wait for the government. I'm going to wait for big business to change. It's about all of us together. And there's a great African saying that if you have one stick, it's easily broken. But if you put a bundle of sticks together, you can't break it. So the more we all come together and work together, you know, great things can happen. So that's really where I'm focusing on what can we do, not what we can't do. I love it. Thank you for that. The quote and your quote, um, I think it's beautiful and captures the essence of this whole thing, which really is about us just reconnecting to each other, our, the places that we live and being appreciative of it. Um, And on that note, I'm appreciative of you for coming on the first time where I got to learn a lot personally. And now this time where I get to learn even more, I I didn't know what was gonna happen, but it was great too. Um, And people listening, I'm sure got a lot of value. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. And thank you for thanking me. And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at Why It Matters and on Instagram at Why underscore it underscore matters underscore. 
you will find our community of guests and listeners who are forming the next generation of changemakers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. I'll see y'all soon.